Hello and welcome to African Jopadi. My name is Ife and I am recording from Accra, Ghana. Hello everyone, my name is Dihia and I'm the co-host of African Joe Party and I'm recording from Vancouver in Canada. Today we are going to be talking about African fisheries policies related to regional fisheries advisory bodies and we have an amazing guest, someone that is actually, I mean, have all the knowledge to speak to us today about this topic. It is with great topics come great guests indeed, Ife. Today we have the honor of hosting with us um, Madam Pukazi. Um, her whole academic training is very inspirational. Her career is inspirational. She has a training in marine and fisheries science and obtained her master's degree in fisheries uh, science and management from the University in Ber of Bergen in Norway. She has over 15 years of experience spanning over a diverse career path, such as fisheries in academia mm -hmm. and in state-owned entities. So she has a unique perspective and was the founding director of the Security Institute for Governance and Leadership in Africa, focusing on maritime security. During this period of time, she worked closely with the African Union Governance Architecture and the African Forum to enhance dialogue between stakeholders mm -hmm. to promote good governance in the area of maritime uh, security. In the last five years, um, Madame Pokazi uh, was the Deputy Director General of Fisheries of the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, responsible for the sustainable development and management of South Africa's 22 commercial fisheries sectors and aquaculture. Her functions included advising the Minister and Parliament on fisheries policies. In 2016, for the first time in South Africa's history, the small-scale fisheries policy was developed and approved by Parliament. The policy led to the recognition and restoration of fisheries rights for coastal communities. For four years, she has been the commissioner of South, Africa's, um, of South Africa to the TUNA Regional Fisheries Management Organization. She led the negotiations on the sustainable management and fishing possibilities of shared and highly migratory fish stocks, so such as tunas, and South Africa led the adoption of various management measures throughout this process. She is currently the director and founder of a fisheries consulting group called TCQ Fisheries Management Group PTY, and it is based in South Africa as well. So really, really thrilled to have in her my longtime Twitter buddy <laughs> with us today to discuss this topic. Welcome to you, Madam Pukazi. Uh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Belhabib and uh, Dr. Snachi. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to, to share uh, some, some uh, thoughts. I would say it's thoughts basically um, from the perspective of my experience and the journey um, that I have, I have, I have journeyed. It is my absolute pleasure to really uh, be on this platform to share uh, these thoughts. Um, more often than not, I leave people provoked. And when that happens, I always get happy that I have achieved something. Uh, I always want to say the things that 
uh, we least want to hear or things that are very difficult to be spoken about. And today I want to narrow, as you have indicated, um, the inputs with regards to this topic of fisheries policy for Africa, just to the fisheries regional uh, management organizations of the tuna. And in particular, I'm going to be zooming on the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission and a little bit on the um, uh, uh, ICAT, which is the, um, the Commission for the Atlantic Tunas. The reason why I want to zoom into these two is basically because they are by large and far of the five tuna RFMOs where you've got the most representation of African countries. At CCSPT, for instance, with the Southern Bluefin Tuna Commission, it's only South Africa that is a member state into that RFMO. Uh, so I don't want to talk about those as I indicate that I want to focus just on these two because you've got your most African countries that participate uh, into this. Journey with me in your visual uh, imagination. Let's start with the Atlantic Ocean. So the Atlantic Ocean and the coastal states of Africa that borders the Atlantic Ocean. We can uh, start at the top uh, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, you wind around West Africa, uh, visualize that, that map of Africa, go further down until you hit South Africa. Then we've got some island countries like Cape Verde, for instance, on the Atlantic, which form part of the African state. So basically, you have got 38 countries uh, in Africa that border the ocean, not just the Atlantic Ocean, but just the, 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 the ocean. So of the 54 countries of Africa, you've got 38 of them that uh, have coastline. And at ICAT in particular, you've got 48 contracting parties that form ICAT, which was established in 1969. And you have got 21 African countries of the 48 contracting parties that are African uh, uh, states in ICAT. Let's move visually to the Indian Ocean, starting at the area of competence of the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission, which is just south of South Africa to the east of South Africa, close to Durban. You move to Mozambique and you wind through Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia, and the islands at uh, Madagascar, Seychelles, Mauritius, the Comoros, you have got at least 31 member states that uh, are part of the Indian Ocean Tuna uh, Commission. And you've got at least about eight of those being the African uh, states participating into these Tuna RFMOs. Now we are talking about the African fisheries policy. And I want to be a little bit controversial and, and kickstart uh, with uh, my, my impression that the overall impression of Africa's fisheries policy is basically in the doldrums. When I say in the doldrums, I mean at some point it is depressive, at some point it is literally in disarray, at some point it is literally uh, not consistent. And I'm going to talk about specific examples of why I say 
at least when it comes to tuna uh, fisheries, the policy of Africa is literally void of intent. So I want to focus on three areas when I journey uh, uh, on these impressions that I want to do. The first, I want to, to look at whether Africa is asserting itself or making itself present within these RFMOs. Are we assertive enough? Are our policies assertive? Are our policies intentional? That's the first thing I want to talk about. The second part, I want to look at Africa's knowledge base and management, and especially as it relates to the tuna fisheries. The third thing, which is the last I want to talk on, is Africa's capability and capacities. Uh, tuna, a uh, well-known, very popular fishery, boasts about close to $4 billion U.S. dollar industry. And if you are taking the Indian Ocean in particular, the net worth or trade turnover of the tuna fisheries of the Indian Ocean is about 2.9 billion US dollar. Now there are these massive, really great opportunity of an economy of tuna fisheries that Africa can participate in, that Africa needs the most, that Africa really can step up in terms of how it assets, she assets herself, how we manages the knowledge and how we look at the capabilities and uh, capacities uh, within that. So I want to start with the first one, whether Africa is asserting itself. And I want to begin with a story of my first engagement um, with uh, discussions of multilateral forum as it relates in particular to the tuna fisheries. It was a meeting held in uh, Zanzibar, uh, uh, facilitated by the Southwest Indian Fisheries Commission, CFC, which is an FAO uh, established under the FAO Constitution, uh, Article 14 of the FAO. Uh, this meeting was basically attended by the member states uh, that participate uh, in, in that forum. And basically, it's all African countries, save to save for France, uh, which is a coastal state in Africa, while uh, it is uh, due to its overseas territory, which is uh, Le Réunion, the Réunion. And in this meeting, the discussion was basically around how Africa group within the Indian Ocean wanted to formulate or to come up with some form of minimum terms and conditions for access agreements. Because as you know better than I do both yourselves, the amount of access agreements that Africa has with various long distance fleets. Now, we came together as African countries to say, let us at least try to do some um, joint discussions in terms of how do we regulate this? Because they, they, they can be so much of a mess and they are exploitative by nature. And we are on record on the RFMO, both in the IOTC and in ICAT, calling these access agreements literally nothing less of what they are except for colonial exploitation that has continued uh, to be per pervasive 
within the African context of extracting the resources within the continent. And I will talk a little bit of how much this extraction really leaves behind. It's literally close to nothing. So in this meeting, uh, during the part of the discussions, uh, there was consensus in terms of we need to regulate these access agreements. We need to, to know the data. We need to know the catches that are being done. We need to manage and check the bycatch if there is any. We need to have a, some bit of the catches landed in the countries where they are caught. Because if you have vessels that are extracting and exporting, because all this tuna is almost exported out and it leaves nothing behind to say that at least a certain percentage must be landed in the country where it is caught so that there is some form of economic activity that happens within that. What puzzled me in this meeting was a fairly, a, a, a fairly a tender fellow uh, from France who was representing Fr France in this meeting. He made a statement that did not sit very well with many of us. And uh, what, why I want to refer to this statement is to say the manner in which he said this statement, that's when I thought to myself, it looks like Africa does not assert herself uh, in terms of making her voice known and the positions known of Africa. So this young fellow from France simply makes a statement that, uh, no, that decision cannot be taken don't forget that it is the EU and which France is part of that has funded this meeting. So you all came here because we funded the meeting. And I'm like, wow, excuse me. Um, can we just hold on a little bit? We need to entertain this statement uh, because this is a negotiation and I viewed it as a, a sense of um, uh, 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 war chests, uh, if I were to put it in that way, that the audacity of this member to speak like this to other members, it's kind of talking down to say, because we funded this meeting, we must get the outcome that we want from this meeting. And from a moment, because I was new in these uh, uh, discussions, Tuna, I, I thought, let me just wait and watch what is going to happen here? And Alas, to, to my surprise, the meeting just went on as if nothing has happened. That's when I got very uncomfortable. Called uh, the, 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 the executive secretary of CFC at the time, it was Aubrey Harris, uh, to say that, hang on, we need to, to entertain this statement and deal with it decisively. And of course, everyone else, uh, the, the member countries, is the Africa group, we all came together and we called it for what it was. Uh, sadly for Aubrey, he really had to, to fight the fires. It really became hot. We had to take a break, actually, uh, uh, so that we take an early break so that we can really address uh, this matter. This is just an example, very little thing. It may be seen as a small thing, but it was only later through other meetings at ICAT at the commission meetings of the IOTC, where many times EU delegates in the meetings, they simply throw in how much of aid we give to Africa, how much aid we are assisting uh, yourselves for um, uh, capacity development and everything. 
And these statements are thrown in these meetings with a tone that is so dissenting and the tone that is saying, therefore, we must get what we want to get out of this. Of course, in all of these other meetings, as I say, all the Africa group, we are on record calling these, uh, these statements and wanting them to apologize and retract these, these statements. But I said to myself, let's look back a little bit and ask ourselves, why do people who have no geographic range in the Indian Ocean are going to be able to have guards to come and tell us what they want to tell us, dictate to us what they want to dictate to us. And then I want to look at the years. As I say, IOTC was established under the FAO uh, uh, Constitution in 1993. 1993. The IOTC established at that time if you look carefully what the Africa countries or Africa's policy has been within that period since 1993, it's in the doldrums, it's non-existent. There is nothing of the agenda that gets set by Africa. We do not do the catches. In the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission, for instance, um, you would find that of the vessels that operate there, if we are just to look at Persein vessels in particular, and I'm raising the Persein vessels because they are the most destructive in nature because of even their added um, catching capacities and capabilities with the feds, which are very destructive uh, even to the stock. And we have a problem currently of stock rebuilding and a problem with yellowfin in the Indian Ocean, which is... Um, uh, according to the scientific research, can crash anytime between 2025 and 2026 unless the fishing capacity decreases. So if you look at the most efficient vessels that are extracting the fish in the Indian Ocean, 15 vessels are Spanish vessels, 12 are French. Then you have an interesting thing of 13 vessels that are flagged with a Seychelles flag but they are all owned by two companies, one company that is in France and another company that is in Spain. So there is even a very smart way by long distance fleets to flag vessels to countries and the ownership is not in the countries. And every fish or most of the fish that is caught even by the vessels that are flagged to coastal states leave the country in the same way, manner as the others live. So the, the, the reason I'm bringing this is to argue that Africa does not have a one coherent policy when it comes to tuna fisheries in the continent. And Africa does not assert itself. So we are basically like an orchard. The orchard belongs to us because the African states arrange states, meaning the tuna is in our waters most of the time, when it's a migratory resource, others are going to say it belongs to nobody. But there's an important thing to ponder here upon that within the EEZ, EEZs of uh, different African countries, that's where catches are also happening under the access agreements. So it's kind of an orchard that belongs to you. Does it sound like in these meetings, does it like that tone and that, you know, that we're here with our aid, which is not really aid, you know, you get, a, you get something out of this, you know, like the aid is actually 
you know, um, some sort of agreement that the EU signs with member states, uh, with uh, with coastal states. But my question here is, is it really embedded within, like, do you think it's embedded within the colonial mindset of some of these countries like France, for example, or the EU? What a very interesting uh, question, uh, Dr. Bilhah. Interesting enough, there is a very close relation to the mentality and the engraving of that mentality to the colonial past. And maybe it's important to indicate that. You would recall that many of the African countries have been under the colonial rule by either Britain, France, Portugal, and a bit of Germany. Because if you look at Namibia, for instance. Yes, exactly. So so those are your major ones. I'm just picking the major ones. Now, look at Seychelles, for instance. They get their independence from Britain in 1976. South Africa gets independence from Britain in 1961 and the rest and the rest others from France, others from Portugal. So you even see the pattern of extraction of these resources. Mozambique, for instance, is a lucifone, which is more, uh, has got some more umbilical cord and links to Portugal. So there's a lot of Portuguese um, uh, trade that happens between Mozambique and even Angola for that matter. They trade more with Portugal. Their fish goes there more often and everything. And and so there is an engraved mentality from the countries that do the extraction. But I want to also turn the coin and say there is a mentality of victimhood in the mentality of the Africans themselves. Because Africans often than not feel that they need to be told what the science is. They need to be told what policy. They need to be told how much fish can be extracted. What is the economic value of the fisheries? And I'm now on, uh, Dr. Belhabib, since your question, I'm getting on the second point of Africa's knowledge base and management. If you look at all the African countries that participate, in particular at ICAT and IOTC, many of the African countries, they do not know the, the worth of the fisheries of the CUNA. I am not exaggerating. Even South Africa, where people may think that South Africa does, South Africa does not know the value of its tuna fishery or the potential uh, even because there is not much of an established tuna fishery, at least in South Africa. There is no one that knows this uh, uh, information. Why is this the situation? Part of the reason is that Africa borrows solutions all the time. Africa is told by consultants, even the African Union, you will not be, uh, uh, I mean, at the African Union, in the building of the African Union, you meet young Europeans. They are called African experts. They are called African experts. And you look at this person and like, goodness me, they are so young. How do they become an, uh, an expert? And the funny thing is that everybody else is an expert about Africa, except for Africans themselves. 
So even the policy around fisheries guided by the AUI bar is driven by consultants. And the reason it's driven by consultants is because donors come, they put the money, and when the donors put the money at AU or at AUI bar, they demand or they drive the, 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 the procurement itself. So you find that even the consultants that are consulting on Africa policies and matters are non-Africans. Then basically they call meetings, some workshop here and there, some uh, 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 seminars and everything else, put together the inputs, boom, you have produced a policy. So there is no intent that is driven by the status of who Africa is and what Africa wants to benefit or to get out of this that goes into these policies. It is always borrowed. It is mostly a cut and paste. It is something that is driven by everybody else except for the Africans. This is absolutely fascinating. And um, I don't know about you, Ife, but I really feel the same when it comes to expertise consultancy, this mindset. Sorry. Yeah, we're, we're recording again. So I was just making a comment about, um, you know, something that Mposi had said with regards to um, this mindset of expertise from the outside, you know, the consultants. And it's true that this is actually how it works. You have a, a call for consultancies, whether consultancies, whether from the EU or the UNEP, UNDP, you know, all sorts of organizations out there, the FAO, and then you have consultants, I would say mostly um I don't want to stereotype or profile, but we ha we see a lot of retired people turning into consultancies and doing consultancies in Africa. But we also see a lot of young people that are barely starting, for example, their PhD, and then they come in as experts teaching other people that are actual actual experts in Africa under the banner of building capacity, which is very you know condescending because. Although I'm not going to embark into ageism here, but there is a certain recognition that we need to make that there's a lot of expertise in Africa um, that is being, you know, wasted by these big organizations. And those, these, like, this expertise could be used as well because it is local. They know much more than any, I would say, newbie, for example. But th this banner of building capacity is really bothering me. And it, it is often used as a justification to set foot on the continent. Um, yeah, you make a very um, important point here. And of course, um, Mposi, the point you made about the cost, the funding, and who dictates what's happened reminds me of the saying, he who pays the piper dictates the tune. And unfortunately, this is practically what is happening. You do not expect someone to pay for your house, and then you would decide what lighting you would, you would have in that house. Directly or indirectly, that person unfortunately would have a say what in what happens and this is something that the African continent needs to get right if it genuinely um, wants to position itself. In relation to um, the capacity building I think this is actually something that is very um, problematic and for me a, a very bad misconception that there is no capacity there because the English interpretation assumes that there is no capacity, so you're coming to build, rather than perhaps capacity enhancing, because there's already something there. 
it's not like you're just coming out of thin air and, and trying to build something from the scratch. scratch. So um, it's basically a thing of uh, interpretation. And I absolutely want to tell you, and I'm sure you already know the symposium, that I, I strongly believe, actually, I make it my day's work. And here, I'm sure you agree with this. And with a saying that um, um, the late um, U.S. Congressman John Lewis, if, if I'm not mistaken, yes, Senator Lewis, he, he said, find a way to get in the way. And if 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 speaking the truth, if if sort of highlighting some of the you're, salient. You're Can you yeah. say that again, Ife, please? Can you say that again, please? Yeah. So I think my internet has a problem, but I'm just trying to reassure Mpuzi that I I strongly believe in what um, the congressman. Lewis from the United States said, he said, um, find a way to get in the way. And that means, you know, if, if, if being true to yourself, if, 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 if presenting the realities so that you can educate others and highlight some of the injustices and the system means being disrupted, then absolutely. I'm actually on that same queue with you. And so I want to thank you for, I mean, some of the points that you've raised already. And then the question now lies, how can we move away from, okay, we've identified the problem. We've identified the, the problem also with education and, and capacity enhancing limitations. So what can the continent, what should the continent be doing differently to make things right? That's, that's a very important um, question, uh, Ife. Before I answer that question, uh, I am, because you probed this and uh, Deha probed it as well, uh, and I was like feeling so excited that we perhaps even need a whole discussion at some other point in time, the three of us, about this issue of capacity uh, building and everything and, and, and that. But just to finish off on that point, before I come exactly to the question you're asking, what needs to be done? is on the issue of capabilities and capacities, exactly what you are talking about. And here I want to just focus on two issues as they relate to IOTC and ICAT. Two things, the catches, who extract the resources the most, how they are extracting it and what effect is doing to the resource or to the, to the, to the health of the stock. I won't even get to the environment and the degradation of the environment and everything else, just to the stock health. And then talk a little bit uh, on the issue of compliance enforcement, fisheries compliance and enforcement, which is one of my real passions. And I think also we may need another day really to zoom into that. But a quick one, both in IOTC and in, 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 in ICAT, if you are looking at the extraction of the fish, obviously the winners take everything. And who are the winners? It is those that have got the big pass. Who have the big pass is the distant water fleets. They take everything. They take all the fish. That's why you're going to have issues in coastal countries where artisanal fishermen, for instance, are complaining, we can't catch fish because we're competing with these big industrialized vessels that are sweeping literally clean the oceans. And there's big issues around that. 
So the real issue is the extraction of the residual, but not just the extraction, but what the extraction is doing to the resource. The IOTC yellowfin tuna resource, as we speak, is in Tatas, close to, 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 to collapse. What are these distant water fishing nations are going to do? Should that stop collapse? They're going to steam those vessels and go look for fish elsewhere. They will follow the fish. But what happens to the African nations who are most the vulnerable, whose livelihood of the people depend on the resource in terms of the jobs, in terms of producing the needed food, and in terms of creating the jobs that are needed all to to boost the economies of these countries? Can we go elsewhere? How can we go elsewhere when we don't even have a single long liner or a single... um, the same vessel, so we can't even follow them to chase the fish elsewhere. So we are going to be left with the broken pieces, and those broken pieces unfortunately cannot be mended because it will be too much damage, and we will be left literally with nothing. The part, again, I want to get into quickly before we get to what can be done is the issue of compliance and enforcement. And I was very excited to see the visit that you've done to uh, in Ghana, in uh, um, uh, IFE, where there is a collaboration and an intention at a regional level to monitor and watch our oceans. The reality about Africa oceans is that they are bare. They are literally on their own. So I apologize to the audience. You know, these are the thrills of um, losing internet <laughs> sometimes. So we lost Ife for a second there, um, you know, um, and we're, we're, we're uh, redoing this before we wrap up basically because we're, I think, hitting the mark of the, the 40 minutes. I think this discussion is very, very interesting. It's almost explosive, as I said. And yes, I agree with Imposi. It's definitely controversial, but it is a discussion that needs to happen. Um, we need to talk about these things. We need to address these issues. We need to be in that vulnerable and uncomfortable stage um, to be able to address these issues. Because if we don't talk about this and about the frustrations um, and about the injustices and the unfairness and the lack of ethic, um, we're not gonna advance. We're not gonna be able to address these issues accordingly. I really want to circle back to what Mposi had said at the very beginning, that statement that um, almost colonial, if not colonial and condescending statement and almost entitled um, to, you know, I call that eventually, and I've seen that some funders do the same thing, you know, we're come, or some organizations do the same thing. We come here, we give you something for free, but you need to do this for us. You need to change your policy. I call that bribing policy. And in this case, it's even worse because it's not only policy, but it's basically extraction. You know, you're bribing your way into getting more quota, for example, or into getting a certain type of gear to be able to operate there, knowing that the continent may not have that type of gear or those types of vessels, et cetera, et cetera. So it's literally <laughs> bribing resource extraction. That's, that's just something that I wanted to circle back to um, before we wrap up. Thank you so much. Uh, that's very beautiful. Thank you so much, um, Deha. I am wrapping up, coming to the question, what can be done? I'm going to talk 
few examples of what can be done because those examples have worked before. Just that from time to time, things lose momentum. And this is one of the greatest tragedy we have in Africa. With change of leadership, there is no continuation. So you find that good things are driven by individuals. And when that individual leaves the system or gets kicked out of the system, things crumble and fall away. So we need to build beyond the institutions that we have. And we are in a globalized environment now, and we need to think different. And I'm going to talk about why we need to think different and what can we think different and what can we do different? The first one is um, I'm, 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 uh, people always think I am crazy when I say fisheries management is not about the fish. It is not about the science. It is not. Fisheries management has everything to do about politics. And people think I'm crazy when I say this. Scientists know that it is about politics when the EU Council of Ministers of Fisheries reject the, 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 the TACs, the, 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 the catch limits that they come up with, scientific recommendations on how much uh, they can catch as the region, almost they double that. It becomes a political decision because it's an economic decision. And the reason why fisheries management is a political decision, it is because it is centered around a policy because fisheries is an economic activity. So if it is an economic activity and it has to have policies, those policies are anchored or are driven by politicians who have a particular term of office. So a particular administration comes in for five years if they are lucky uh, ministers, they don't get reshuffled by the president or they stay for the five years. So it's short term uh, uh, um, mentality that gets to grip the politics. There was a politician that is in office for five years. Unfortunately, many politicians in Africa who are supposed to be the vanguard or the, 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 the ones that are championing and safeguarding the interest of Africa. It is unfortunate that they become the opposite. They also come to extract something uh, in their term of office. Well, politics by nature are self-serving, but in particular, in African context of politics, you have politicians who care less about the people they serve or not the people they that elect them into office. They live like gods, they are accompanied, they have entourages and everything. It's about them and the, the prestige that it brings and everything. Now, what I am arguing is that we need to rethink fisheries management discourse insofar as talking the politics or looking at the politics, because the politics make fisheries policies and, and politics can break fisheries policies. It's as simple as that. And as I'm saying this, I recall um, almost 18 years ago now when I was a student in Norway, on the last day of the teaching, um, of the teaching uh, semester, our fisheries economy, uh, economics lecturer 
made a statement. And that was the only time politics was mentioned in my two-year training of fisheries management. So he says to us at the last day of the teaching semester, he says, we've taught you what you ought to know about fisheries management. Now you are going to go out there and experience the reality. And I want to tell you that, these are his words, politics become a ceiling to fisheries management. When politics bend to the right, fisheries management needs to bend to the right. And when they bend to the left, the fisheries needs to bend to the left. Today, I, until today, I do not know what he meant by that because he left that statement just at that. And it was the only time, as I say, in the two years, there was a mention of politics. And what I experienced through the years I've been in the fisheries space, I'm not sure what he said um, is what I have experienced, but this is what I have experienced. The politics are embedded in the, in the, in the, in the fisheries. The current talks of the WTO about uh, uh, subsidies, fisheries uh, subsidies, those talks are political. The talks at RFMOs, at ICAT, at IOTC, the real talks happen intersectionally and trading and lobbying happens in between the meetings. When you come at a commission meeting, decisions are already taken uh, literally. So this is what Africa needs to do different. We need to start to think at a regional level, West Africa, for instance, we need to be saying, do we have an Africa group or an, a platform for the West Africa group to discuss the issues as they relate in particular to the CUNA RFMOs? At ICAT, for instance, the number of African countries we have at ICAT, delegates sit in there quietly, and when they speak, they are supporting what the EU is saying. I'm talking about reality. So we need to have blocks, the, the already uh, existing blocks of Africa. We don't need to create new ones. It could be Comefat, it could be any other platform that is already there. EAC, it could be within SEDEC, but we do need to bring our heads together as Africans and define or redefine what it is that we want to get out of these platforms. Are we there to be menu? Or are we there on the table to partake and dine as well? Because insofar as things are happening now, we are really just menu. We, we, we just the menu on the table. We're not there to dine. Everybody else is dining us, dining from us. So that's the thing I think needs to happen. It has happened before. We have had a very strong grouping before in ICAT driven by Africa Group. And I can tell you right now, the executive secretary that is currently in the ICAT now, it took the Africa Group to come together to make sure that the next executive secretary of the ICAT is an African. And it is an African as I speak. It took the Africa Group to come together. It took lobbying. It took, uh, of course, talking and everything, talking to governments and trying to convince the different governments. So it kind of needs a, some form of an evangelical approach. That's how I call it. I always say in Africa, we need always an evangelical approach to things. We need an evangelical approach to conscientize our politicians. Because as I say, they are not there for the interest of the continent. They are 
there most of the time for their own interests. So we need to conscientize them, to show them this is the value of your resource. It has happened before. We have had ministers like uh, Minister, the former president of uh, Tanzania, may his soul rest in peace. He, when he was fisheries minister, for instance, within the SADC uh, minister forum, ministers forum, he spearheaded a joint patrol uh, of the oceans in the SADC. It was uh, uh, tested with a South African uh, patrol vessel, started off in Cape Town, went off in Mozambique, closed the Mozambican channel, went off to Kenya, and it uh, went off and went to Tanzania. It was re received in Tanzania by Minister Makofuli at that time, he was not president, he was Minister of Fisheries. But it took these ministers at a SADC level to take a decisive decision that we are going to put together our resources and patrol the oceans. And alas, guess what? The number of vessels, foreign distant vessels, including EU, by the way, there was a vessel from Spain that was caught fishing illegally into, into that space. So we need this evangelical approach and we need to have this discussion at a, at a, a regional level. The next one, as I wrap up, the diaspora. We need to utilize the diaspora. Africa has so much brains inside the continent and outside the continent. And we are so connected now than before. We don't have to meet physically. We are able to use technology to connect with one another. And we need to create a, a, an, an intentional group that is made of the experts in the diaspora that are going to cross-pollinate with the experts that are in the continent to make sure that we safeguard the interests of Africa for Africa. And on that powerful note, I mean, I want to say thank you so very much, Imposi, for being here. And it, it, it looks like we're going to have to invite you again because there is so much to talk about. Thank you so much to our listeners for listening and for being with us and for your patience as well. And, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode or this month's episode. Thank you. Thank you so, thank much, you so thank much, much for being with us. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.